This is Saving Grace, Living in Light of God's Love, a podcast ministry brought to you by Grace School of Theology, a seminary to the world committed to the truth of Scripture and life application through the lens of grace. Hello, I'm Carmen Pate, your host for today's podcast. If we were to review your life's record today, what would it reveal? Well, if you're like me, there are a few things that I'm proud of and would be happy to reveal, but there are other things in my life that I regret, things that I am ashamed to reveal. Oh, that's why I'm so thankful for God's mercy and grace. But what about the life record of Christ? As we complete this series on the uniqueness of Christ, Mark Ray will take us through Christ's unique record. Mark is Vice President of Community Development here at Grace and the Executive Director of the Grace Center for Spiritual Development. Mark holds a Master of Biblical Studies from Dallas Theological Seminary and a Master of Divinity from Grace School of Theology. He has served churches as an associate pastor and as a lead pastor, and he has served as COO of a major evangelistic ministry. Let's listen now as Mark reviews Christ's unique record. Each one of us has a record. We have a record of our lives in different ways, in different shapes, in different forms. Each one of us has a record. You might have report cards that is a record of how you did in school. You might have a marriage certificate that is a record of the union of two people under God. You might have graduation certificates. You might have driving records. There's all sorts of records in our life that record for us unique situations in each of our lives. And those recordings in the unique situations, as we look back on them, help form and shape and mold us into the person that we are today. We each have unique records. Well, we have the scriptures that give us a very unique record of Jesus Christ, and he was no different. We have for us these unique records, these unique situations of Christ that set him apart from anybody else. Those things that make him absolutely unique. And we're going to look specifically at four of them this morning in this conclusion to what makes Christ unique series. And these four, uh, four very distinct situations, circumstances, these very distinct records set out for us the true person of Jesus, the true purpose of Jesus, the true power of Jesus, and the true promise of Jesus. These will set out for us very distinctly something that makes him unique above all else. His unique record, no one else can claim it, no one else has it, no one else has shared it. This is his unique record. Now, before we start into this, I want to give you a definition of unique. In the Webster's Dictionary, there are actually six definitions of unique, no matter, depending on how you use it. Let's, let's look at the first definition of unique. Could you throw that one up there? The first definition is this. Unique is existing as the only one or as the sole example, a single, solitary, and type or characteristic. In other words, a unique copy of an ancient manuscript, something that is unique unto itself. Number two, having no equal. It's unparalleled. It's incomparable as in Bach was unique in the handling of the counterpoint. 
The third definition, limited in occurrence to a given class, situation, or area, there is a certain species that would be unique to, let's say, Australia. Number four, limited to a single outcome or result without alternative possibility. There are certain types of problems that only have unique answers. The fifth definition, it's not typical, it's unusual. She has a unique smile. And the sixth definition, the embodiment of unique characteristics, the only specimen of a given kind. The unique is also the improbable. These are six definitions of unique that when we take them into consideration in the life of Christ, as we will do at the end of this message, we're going to see how unique he truly is just by virtue of the definition. But this morning, we're going to dive into these four very specific records of his life that make him unique. First, we're going to look at the transfiguration in which his person is going to come to light. We're going to look at the fact that he was the savior of the world in which his purpose will come to light. We're going to look very specifically then at his resurrection and his power that comes to light. And finally, we're going to look at his return, the fact that he has promised us something and see what that true promise is all about. Four things as we conclude this unique look, because we started back a number of weeks ago with the fact that Jesus has a unique reality. Remember that? A unique reality that no one has pre-existed before. Jesus is the only one that existed before everything came into creation. He's the only one that existed uniquely in time like he did with his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. He also had a unique relationship. A relationship to the Father, where the Father called Him Son, and He called the Father His Father. Where Jesus claimed the power and the authority of God, and even claimed to be God Himself. We looked at His unique request of us. Take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Drink. This is my blood of the new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The only one to ever claim specifically for us to remember His sacrifice this way. Last week, we looked at his distinct role, his unique role as the Messiah, the anointed one. And not only did he claim it, but those around him claimed it. And then, interestingly enough, they lived like they believed it, that he was actually who he said he was. And today, we'll look at this unique record, the transfiguration, Savior of the world, the resurrection, and his return. Let's look first at the transfiguration. This is seen in Mark 9 and Luke 9, but I want to read to you the Matthew account, Matthew 17. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, tell, no one, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. So here's this circumstance in which Jesus takes three disciples, James, Peter, and John, the same three that went to see Jairus' daughter raised from the dead, the same three that went into the Garden of Gethsemane with him, 
These are the three that he took on very special excursions with him, deeper into who he was. And he takes them up on the mountain. And when they're up on the mountain, all of a sudden, he just glows. He explodes with light. It's like turbo Clorox. He's just unbelievably brilliant in front of him. And then Moses and Elijah come. The law and the prophets symbolizing the totality of Scripture coming to talk with Jesus. And Peter, in his own way, walks up and says, you know, Lord, it's really good that we're here. (laughs) Really? Yeah, it's really good that we're here. And by the way, let me make three tabernacles for you, three tents. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. It just shows that Peter didn't quite get it, even though Jesus is shining as bright as the sun out there. Peter puts him on the same playing field with Elijah and Moses until the voice of God comes. And the mountain gets overshadowed and you hear this, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. The moment God points out that Christ is above the others, Moses and Elijah, these two great people of the Jewish faith, God points to his son and says, this is the one. And the minute they hear this, they drop, drop to their knees. They absolutely, it knocks them out. And they stay there greatly afraid until Jesus comes out of this transfigured state, goes over to them, touches them, lifts their faces. And I love this passage. It says, they looked up and they saw Jesus only. Isn't that a great statement? When they looked up, they saw Jesus only. Now imagine being a disciple. You've just seen Jesus transfigure like this. And now they walk down the mountain together. So Jesus is now walking beside them. And as he's walking down, he says, oh, by the way, don't tell anybody about this vision. Are you kidding me? You're expecting me to keep quiet about something I just, yes, don't tell anybody. And then listen to what he says, until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Wouldn't your first question be, and when might that be, Lord? Or how about like Peter, no, 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 you can't die. Wait a minute, this glorified state that I just saw, you just told me you're going to die? This makes no sense at all. And yet, really, the disciples don't even hear that. But I want you to hear John 1, 14, because you get this unbelievable transfiguration of Jesus in all of his glory. But listen to John 1, 14 as well. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is only the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Listen to what John's saying. Not only did we behold his glory when he was transfigured in this incredible statement, This incredible vision of Jesus in his absolute state as who he is, his true person. But John says, we also beheld his glory when he walked among us. Eugene Peterson says this, Jesus became one of us and moved into the neighborhood. And when he moved into the neighborhood, we beheld his glory then too. The glory is this one who walked among us, who healed among us, who loved us, who forgave us who was the perfect man among us, we beheld his glory not only in this incredibly transfigured state, but we beheld his glory as he walked with us. And what John is saying is that knocked me out too. It was unbelievable to walk with him and behold him being God as a man on the face of this earth. Having the the incredible fortitude to come leave his heavenly throne and come down and walk among us, to be among us. When I was in college, 
My junior year at SMU, I had pledged a fraternity when I was a freshman, and my junior year, we held a fraternity formal, a big dance. And I had invited a young lady from UT, from Austin, who had family friends in the Dallas area to come and be my date to this dance. And when she came up, she, I'd, I'd known her for a long time. We'd known each other through Young Life and another other areas. Great Christian girl. She'd come up and, and agreed to come be my date to this dance. And we decided that what we were going to do is we were going to practice some dance moves. Now, this was back in the day when what really began to be a resurgence was kind of swing dancing. Um, you did these kind of great moves where you kind of pretzeled yourself up. You know, you kind of pretzeled each other up, and then you kind of unpretzeled each other, and all of a sudden you were looking at each other. Well, we practiced a number of these really intricate pretzel moves that I probably couldn't do today. But we practiced them because we really kind of wanted to be cool walking into the middle of this group. This was a girl that nobody knew, none of my fraternity brothers knew, and we wanted to really kind of be cool in the middle of this dance. Now, the dance started, and I was there in my tux. Now, this was a tux that I had bought when I was a sophomore in high school, so it had velvet lapels. <laughs> it had the big blue ruffled shirt. I had the bow tie that was about this big. And man, I was cool. <laughs> and I had this cute girl on my arm. Not as cute as my wife, but I had this cute girl on my arm. Did I do that okay? Okay. And we're out in the middle of the dance floor, and all of a sudden we decide that we're going to do some of these dance moves. So we're going after it. I mean, it's just this twisting. And we had this one particular move in which I was supposed to take her hands, both hands up over my head, twist her behind my back, and then come out on the other side. And I'm in the middle of the twist, and, and remember, I'm in my sophomore high school. This is junior in college. This is my sophomore high school jacket. And I had much broader shoulders by then, and I was kind of a beast of a guy <laughs> as a junior. Now, you're not supposed to laugh that hard, all right? And so we're, we're doing this twist thing, and we're coming around, and I came around, and my jacket caught, and I swing this way, and my elbow hit her square in the temple, and she dropped like a stone onto the ground. So I'm doing this twist, and boom, and I look around, and my date is unconscious on the dance floor. I have, I just... I, I mean, I knocked her out. And all, that, all these people are gathering around. Well, listen, it was the uncoolest moment of my life. They're all coming around me, and I pick her up, and I guarantee she didn't see me only. She saw about 12 of me. She, I mean, there was just this glazed look on her face, this sweet girl, and I had absolutely knocked her out. Friends, let me ask you a question. Does Jesus knock us out? Are we knocked out by Christ, the one in all of his transfigured glory, as well as the one who walks day by day with us? Are we knocked out by Jesus? When we look up, do we only see him? What is unique about Jesus and this transfigured statement about Jesus is there's no one like him. And friends, that should just knock us out. Well, the second thing he says is that he is the Savior of the world. And I want to walk you through a series of passages that lay out his true purpose, who he actually is and what he came to do for us. Listen to these passages, and I'm going to go through a bunch of them. 
And you're going to see the pattern unfold in this. The first one is this, Matthew 1.21. This is the Christmas story, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Why did he come? To save us from our sins, to save his creation from the thing that would separate us from the God of the universe, to save us from our sins. Matthew 18, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. You see, in our sin, we're separated and we're lost. And so he came to reunite us, to redeem us, to bring us back into that holy relationship, the way we were created to be. Matthew 20, 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, to pay the price so that all who believe in him would have life now and life eternal. Listen to Luke 2, the the birth story coming out of Luke. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, the Savior of the world, the one who from his very birth was the one pointed to as the anointed one. With Zacchaeus, listen to him with Zacchaeus, and Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. This is a seeking out mission that Jesus has. Those who are lost, he is to bring them back together. With John the Baptist, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God, the one who would be the ultimate sacrifice. Before his ministry ever started, John pointed to him and said, This is the one who will be the sacrifice for you and for me. With Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. His purpose, his true purpose, to be the Savior of the world. With the Samaritans, many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, the woman, for we ourselves have heard him and know that this is indeed the Christ the Savior of the world. Now, these Samaritans, they were outcasts, right? These weren't in the inner circle of the Jews. These were the outcasts. And they said, just by hearing him, we know him to be who he said he was, the Savior of the world. Listen to him in John 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you don't believe All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but raise it up at the last day. And then he concludes with this, and this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Why did he come? That all who see him And all who believe will have life eternal beginning the moment they believe. It was his purpose for coming. It's why he's here. Listen to him in John 11. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus said to her this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Could I hear that one more time? Yeah. Jesus proclaiming, this is my purpose. 
that there would be eternal life for all who believe. John 12, Jesus cried out and said, he who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me, sees, he who sees me, sees him and who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my word, does not believe, I don't judge him, for I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. Finally, in John 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Jesus made a very specific statement about being the Savior of the world. It was his purpose for coming. It is the reason why he came. We sit here today because Jesus came. We have the opportunity for life now and life eternal because Jesus came to be the Savior of the world. Not to head up a religion, not to make a political statement, not to make the economy great, but to save us from the one thing that would destroy us, our own sins. I've asked Chris to sing a song called, My Savior, My God. And I want you just to reflect on all of these passages about who my Savior is. Listen for a moment. Before I knew my Savior My Savior, Lord 
sit right there with a monitor right in front of you. Just, wow. Thanks, Chris. He is my Savior. He is my God. And His purpose was to come here and save us from our sins. To find those who are lost. To redeem them and bring them back to Him. Well, He unveiled His true power in His resurrection. And I don't want to walk you through the resurrection account. We'll do that in a couple of months when we get to Easter. But I want to walk you through those people that were eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses to the resurrection in, the, in the, a biblical account. Let me read just a sampling of those. The angels in Matthew 28 attested to the women who came down to the tomb that Jesus had risen from the dead. In Matthew 28 and in Mark 16, he appeared directly to the disciples in his resurrected form. On the road to Emmaus, two men in both Mark 16 and in Luke 24, Jesus appeared and unfolded all of who he is in the Old Testament scriptures. The risen one, the resurrected one. To the 11, those without Thomas, and then with Thomas, he specifically said, here I am, put your fingers in the holes in my hand and your hand in my side and believe that I am the one who has been resurrected. The angels announced it in Luke 24. He came to Mary in John 20, to the disciples in John 20, and in John 21. At the beginning of the book of Acts, we see Jesus come to them, and then at the ascension, he came to the disciples. Time and time and time and time again, Jesus showed himself the resurrected Lord to multiple witnesses because an eyewitness is the greatest testimony. And so his resurrection testified to the fact that he was the one who rose from the dead. But I want you to listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. Paul says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen. Now, before I go into this laundry list, I want to explain something to you. First of all, Paul says, this is the word by which you were saved. The word by which you were saved is first that Christ died for our sins according to what the scriptures tell us. And then the proof of the fact that he died is the fact that he was buried. The proof of death is burial. Then he says he rose from the dead according to the scriptures and is still risen today, by the way, according to the scriptures. 
and that he was seen. The proof that he was resurrected is that he was seen. We just read through a number of scriptures in which he was seen, but listen to what Paul says. First, he was seen by Peter, Cephas, then by the 12, the disciples. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained in the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of time. Paul gives us a laundry list of all those who saw him as eyewitnesses to his resurrected body, to who he was, and that he claimed to be the one who would rise again. And remember the transfiguration. Don't say a word about this, about what you've seen of me until I rise from the dead. Now here he is risen from the dead, and he shows himself to the disciples on numerous occasions. But then he shows himself to over 500 people on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And he says this, and some of them remain though some have fallen asleep. And what Paul is telling us is that there are some who are still alive today at the writing of this letter that will read this letter and attest to the fact that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. And there are people who are alive today who can testify to the truth of that. And there are also those who, if they didn't believe it, could tell you that it wasn't the truth, but no one came forward to say it wasn't the truth. The eyewitness testimony is here, and it says over 500 people saw him many of whom are still alive at the writing of this letter to testify to that truth. And by the way, you can go find them because they're still here. And they will testify to seeing the risen Lord. I love what S. Lewis Johnson says. He says, the resurrection is God's amen to Christ's statement, it is finished. Isn't that a great statement? The resurrection is God's amen to Christ saying on the cross, it is finished. In other words, Jesus said it is finished. The work is done. The work that you have sent me, my purpose to save people from their sins, that work has been accomplished. And God's amen to this, his exclamation point to it is finished is this, he raised him from the dead. So Jesus now, the resurrected one who has conquered sin, who has conquered death and is now resurrected, God says amen to that work. This is exactly what Jesus was waiting to hear when God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And God said, amen to the work of Jesus Christ. So now we've seen him, his true person in the transfiguration. We've seen his true purpose in him being the savior of the world. We've seen his true power in the resurrection. I want, you to, I want to take you to his true promise, the promise that he will come again. And I want you to hear how many times he says, I will come again. He says in Matthew 16, I will come and bring my reward with me. My reward to all those who believe I am coming. In Matthew 24, he says, I'm coming on the clouds of heaven. He says, I'm coming at an hour you don't expect. So don't do nothing. But know that I will come at any moment. Be expectant. Be awaiting my arrival. I will come at an hour you don't expect. I will come in glory in Matthew 25. He told the high priest that he was going to come in Matthew 26. In Matthew 8, he told the, the religious leaders. He said in John 14 that there are many mansions in my father's house, and I've gone to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back and get you. So the promise is I'm going to return. In Revelation 1, John said it. He's coming back. Jesus said in Revelation 22.7 and in 22.12 that I'm coming back. I'm bringing that reward with me. And listen to him in Revelation 22.20. Jesus, who testifies to these things, says, 
Surely I am coming quickly. And we say, Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. So let me repeat that. Jesus said, Surely I am coming quickly. And we say, Amen. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. We say, Amen. Because Jesus promised he's coming back and we as believers say, amen. Come now. Do you believe he could come this afternoon? Amen. Yes. Do you believe he could come before the end of this service? Yes. Wow. The transfigured one, the savior of the world, the resurrected one promises us he will return. In 1987, In the NCAA men's basketball finals, LSU was playing Indiana. LSU was up by eight points with about three minutes left to play. And the commentator made this statement. He said, something's happened to the LSU team. They've changed their style of play. They're now just watching the clock instead of playing wholeheartedly, instead of really getting after it. They're now playing cautious as if to protect that lead. As happened so many times when that momentum shifts, Indiana came back. And in the closing seconds, they won the game by one point and went on to be the NCAA champions in 1987. If you've ever played a sport, you know that momentum can shift. Played basketball for a lot of years. And I've seen game after game after game in which You get a lead at the end and you try to protect that lead. You stop playing the game the way you played it to get you to where you were. And what Jesus tells us is I'm coming back. You don't know when, so stop watching the clock. What he's telling us is get engaged with the time that you have left. However much time you have left, play the game with your whole heart. Play it engaged with me. The transfigured one. The savior of the world. The resurrected one. I am here now, unique, unlike anybody else. And I'm asking you to engage in life with me for however much time you have left. So what does that mean to us today? Can we impact the world for Christ right now? Can we impact the world for Christ right now? That wasn't one of those wandering statements. That was one of those, yes, we might impact the world right now. We hear from the writer of Hebrews, don't forsake the assembling together. Instead, stir one another up to love and good deeds. Well, what you might stir up in another right here, right now, might be something that changes the life of somebody else. You might change the life of the person sitting right next to you this morning before we leave here today. Because Christ said, I'm coming back. And friends, I want to be one that he looks at me and says, well done, good and faithful servant. You didn't watch the clock. You engaged with me for whatever time you had left. You had that urgency of knowing that I could return at any moment, so you engaged with me in all ways, in all forms. You were obedient to me when I asked you to go do what I asked you to go do. Friends, I don't want the clock to run out and us not be engaged with Jesus Christ, the one who showed his true person, the one who told us his true purpose, the one who showed his true power through the resurrection, the one who made a promise to us, a true promise to us, that I came once and I'm coming again. You just don't know when. 
Well, friends, I want to take a look back at that unique definition as we conclude this series. I want you to see how Jesus Christ fits the definition of unique across the board. Could you put the first ones up, Jeff? Here's the first definition. He exists as the only one or as the sole example, single, solitary, and type of characteristic. So Jesus is unique. He's the only one who ever claimed to be preexistent. He's the only one who ever claimed to be God. He's the only one who ever claimed to be the Messiah. The only one. And by the way, he backed every one of those things up. So he didn't just, they weren't just false words. He claimed it and he backed it up. Look at the second definition. Having no like or equal, unparalleled, incomparable. Jesus is unique in what he said and did from his birth to his miracles, to his transfiguration, to his resurrection and his ascension. No one is comparable to Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. No one. No one even. I used to say no one's even in the ballgame. No one's even on the planet. No one even gets up to bat compared to Jesus. Look at the third one. Limited in occurrence to a given class, situation, or area, Jesus is unique to this earth and to the human race. He's the only one that's ever been God-man. He's the only one that was ever born uniquely by the Holy Spirit of a virgin. He's the only one that ever lived the way he did, died the way he did, was resurrected the way he was. He's the only one who's ever done what he's done, unique and unto himself. Look at number four. Limited to a single outcome or result without alternative possibilities. Jesus is the unique in that he's the only answer to sin. It was his purpose for coming. There is no other answer to sin, friends. He is it. You either go after him or you're in your sin forever. And one leads to death, the other leads to life. There is no other alternative. Look at number five. Not typical, unusual. He's unique in how he loved people. No one else has loved like he had. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. From the cross, saying that of the ones that were crucifying him. Unique beyond compare. And the sixth one. The embodiment of unique characteristics, the only specimen of a given kind. He's unique in that he is the only one ever to be God and man together, to manifest the Father on earth, to be perfect, and to be the only Son of God. There is no one else like him. No one else compares to him. No one else is in his category. He had a unique reality. He had a unique relationship. He had a unique request. He had a unique role. A unique role. And here today he has a unique record. You can only draw one conclusion from this. Jesus Christ is unique. There is no other one like him. And friends, that leaves us with a dilemma. And the question is this, what do I do with that? What do I do with the fact that Jesus Christ is unique? Across the board, what do I do with the fact that he's unique? And you only have two options. The first option is I can reject it all. I can say, I don't believe it. Nope. Not going to believe any of that. Not going to believe he was unique. Not going to believe any of that. And if that's where you land, know this. You'll be left in darkness. You'll be left in sin. You'll be left in death. You'll be left with no hope. Our other option is to believe it. And to believe it 
to the point of knowing that we do exactly like the others did, that when they believed he was the Messiah, they lived like they believed it. When we believe it, and we have life now and life eternal, we are to live life not looking at the clock, we're to live life engaged with Jesus Christ in every way, shape, or form, because that's where there's life. In obedience to him, that's where there's life. That's where we want to be. Because that's the truth, walking hand in hand with the unique one, walking in a deep relationship with the unique one, walking with him, obedient to what he asked us to do, because he is who he said he was, the Messiah, the absolute unique one. Those are our two choices. We can have life or we can have death. Jesus Christ is the only one to ever be who he said he was and to back it up. And in that uniqueness, he is the answer. We can believe it or not. Choice is ours. My prayer for us is that we would believe it and believe it so fully, so fully, that we are radically changed because we don't know when he's coming back. And I pray that you are standing in the same camp with me, that you want to stand in front of Jesus and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That you don't want to regret. That you didn't give it all for the sake of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father God, that you sent the unique one to this earth. You gave him to us as a savior, as a Messiah, as a servant. There has been no one like him. And you give us a choice. The choice is to reject him or to believe him. Father, our prayer is that we would believe so deeply, we would believe so fully, that we would experience the life that you promise us in him, a life that is full, a life that is joy, a life that is peace, a life that can't wait for his return, but a life that is also engaged so deeply in what he's about here on earth, in obedience to him, that we don't even notice the clock. You are the God of the universe, and you gave us your son. We are eternally grateful for that. Thank you that you've given us one who is so unique. We give you praise and glory this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Mark Ray. After hearing about Christ's record, I hope you join me in knowing that we can be confident in who Christ is, His purpose, His power, and His promises to us. We pray that you've grasped the uniqueness of Christ as a result of this series. If you would like to dig deeper on your own in your personal time or in a small group study, we have a free study guide of the series available for you. You can download it today at gsot.edu forward slash center. That's gsot.edu forward slash center. 
All programs that you may have missed are available in our archives. We so appreciate you joining us today. And remember, the love of Christ can never be earned and it can never be lost. You have been listening to Saving Grace, a podcast ministry of Grace School of Theology. For more information, visit gsot.edu slash savinggrace. Views expressed on this podcast may not always be the views of Grace School of Theology or its leadership.